Well, that's a tough act to follow. What a beautiful song. Merry Christmas. Uh, my name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm the lead pastor here at Oasis Church, and it's so great to have you with us today. If uh, this is your church family, if this is the church that you visit, if this is your first time ever with us, we're so glad to have you with us, and we hope that you have a wonderful Christmas. You know, the other day I was driving on the highway and I couldn't help but notice all of the, the billboards on the side of the road. These billboards were advertising different companies and products and services and many of them had a, a different tagline or slogan. And it got me thinking, what is the, the best tagline of all time? What is the, the greatest, most famous slogan in history? And so I did what anyone would do, and I googled it. And here were a few of the suggestions. Just do it, Nike. The happiest place on earth, which apparently is not on your couch on Boxing Day watching the cricket eating leftovers, but apparently it's Disneyland. Finger licking good, KFC. Oh, what a feeling, Toyota. I'm not going to do the jump. I'll injure myself and then yeah, the sermon will be over. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. The best a man can get, Gillette. Snap, crackle, pop, rice bubbles. Eat fresh, Subway. And I'll finish with one of my personal favorites. It's from Old Spice, which is men's cologne. If your grandfather hadn't worn it, you wouldn't exist. That's a bit risque for Christmas. <laughs> now, the reason I bring this up is because I wonder, if we had to come up with a tagline for Christmas, if we had to come up with a slogan to summarize Christmas, what would it be? What would you choose? Now, of course, there are already a few floating around. For many people, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. For these people, they did their Christmas shopping months ago. They put their Christmas tree up in October. They had their Christmas outfit sorted ages ago. These people look something like this. For others, though, Christmas is the silly season. It's that time of year where everything gets a bit crazy. We get a bit crazy busy. We spend crazy amounts of money. We go to crazy amounts of events, everything just gets a little bit crazy and we can end up feeling or looking something like this. For many others though, Christmas is not the most wonderful time of the year, nor is it just the silly season. For others, Christmas is hard, it's painful, it's difficult. You see, Christmas can bring painful things to the surface. It might be an unresolved tension in the family, or an empty seat at the table, or unfulfilled hopes and dreams, or, or family on the other side of the world, or any number of things. The point is that Christmas 
is complicated. And there's no simple slogan that could summarize Christmas, because Christmas is a time of mixed emotions. It's a time of both joy and pain, both wonder and sorrow. And in this way, Christmas is a lot like life. Life is both full of joy and pain, wonder and sorrow. I mean, even just in the last few weeks, we have had festivals and parties and time with family. We've also mourned and grieved the senseless murder of two young police officers and a bystander. Both joy and tragedy. And the question that I want us to consider briefly today is this. How does the birth of a child over 2,000 years ago, on the other side of the world, how does it help us in the trenches of life? How does it help us to deal with the difficulties of life? Does the birth of Jesus actually help us? Does the birth of Jesus offer us any real comfort, any real hope, any real help? Now, to explore this question, I'd like us to turn to just a short passage in the Bible. This passage is found in a book of the Bible called Hebrews. It's not a passage that you normally would hear on Christmas, but it's the perfect passage for Christmas because it's all about the coming, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and what that means for you and for me. So I'm going to read for us from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. If you don't have your Bibles there in front of you, you can follow along on the screen. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. This is what God's Word says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This passage shows us how Jesus offers real help and real hope to real sinners and sufferers like us. And we're going to look at it just under two simple headings. The first is this. Jesus is able to help us because he is like us. Jesus is able to help us because he is like us. Now, if you're a regular at Oasis, you know that I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis, the, the British author and theologian. And I particularly like his Chronicles of Narnia series. And there's a scene in the final book of that series where Lucy, one of the main characters, says something profound about Christmas. She says, in our world, a stable once held something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And friends, this is precisely the claim of Christmas, that the manger held the maker, that the infinite God became an infant, that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's the same claim that is being made here in Hebrews 4 verse 14. The author tells us about the identity of Jesus. He says that he is the great high priest. That is, he is our representative before God. This was the job of the high priest, to represent the people before God. And Jesus has done this by going into the very presence of God. 
We're told that he has ascended into heaven. Why? Because he is none other than the Son of God, verse 14 says. Jesus is, the Bible claims, the second person of the triune God. Jesus is God with us. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hang on a minute. Aren't you trying to make the claim that Jesus is like us? The last time I checked, I hadn't ascended into heaven. And I certainly wasn't part of the Godhead. So if Jesus is great and glorious and divine, how could he possibly be like us? Well, this is what makes verse 15 so stunning. Look at what the author goes on to say about Jesus. He says, For we do not have a high priest, a representative before God, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. In other words, the writer is saying, Jesus, the Son of God, he has become one of us. And he knows what it's like to be us. This is a stunning, almost unbelievable truth. You know, my wife Molly and I have enjoyed the Netflix series, The Crown. It's a, a dramatized retelling of the life and the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And there's a scene in season four where Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip are to go outside to meet crowds of people at Buckingham Palace. And an aide says to them before they go out, they says, well, we've identified and prepared a few suitable members of the general public for you to meet. To which Prince Philip says, well, come on, let's get this over with. And they go out into the crowd for a few prepared, polite handshakes before they quickly retreat back to the palace. Now, whether it happened this way or not, this is how we expect royalty to act. And the Bible is saying here in Hebrews 4 that this is not the way that God acts. That this is not how God feels towards us. And Christmas proves this to be true because Jesus has become one of us. God didn't just do a meet and greet and then take off, rush back to heaven to sanitize his hands and take a long hot shower. He didn't just dip his toes in. He dived all the way in. He became one of us. And this means God knows what it's like to be us. He empathizes. He sympathizes. And not just on our good days. The Bible says, with our weaknesses. We think that our weaknesses repulse God. We think our struggles make God turn up his nose at us. But this verse actually says it's the opposite. Our weaknesses don't repulse God, they actually draw out God's heart. Our struggles don't make God turn up his nose at us, they actually make God draw near to us. You know, when one of my three children come to me in pain, struggling with something, I don't feel cold to them in that moment. I feel drawn to them. I want to help them. God's heart beats with sympathy for us because he knows what it's like to be us. I mean, just read through the four Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. You'll see that Jesus Christ experienced what we experience. He sighed with frustration. He got indignant when he witnessed injustice. He got angry at hypocrisy. He got tired and thirsty. He was overcome by grief. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. 
He was tempted by Satan. He was hated by the world. He was misunderstood by his family. He was betrayed by his friends. He was falsely accused by the authorities and then mocked and beaten and tortured. He felt the fear of oncoming death and then actually tasted death itself. Jesus understands our weaknesses. And this is why Jesus is able to help us because he knows what it's like to be us. He has walked in our shoes. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, not my shoes exactly. I mean, I'm a mum with small children, and Jesus was a 30-year-old single man. Or I'm in a, a, a difficult marriage, and, and Jesus never was married. Or, or I'm really struggling to pay my mortgage, and Jesus never had a mortgage. So I don't think he understands exactly what I'm going through. But friends, he does. I mean, mums, that feeling of constantly pouring yourself out for others, Jesus knows what that is like. That feeling of, of loneliness and isolation, Jesus knows what that is like. The feeling of stress and struggle and strain, Jesus knows what that is like. The details may not be exactly the same, but the burden underneath is. Jesus knows what it's like to be us, and so he invites us to come to him. And this is why Christmas is such good news, because Jesus is able to help us because he is like us. Now, we could end here and we'd be greatly encouraged. We'd be greatly helped. But the truth is, it wouldn't quite be enough. Because we need more than sympathy, we need saving. We don't just need someone to sit with us in our pain. We need someone who is able to do something about it. I mean... If you got lost while you were climbing Mount Everest, you would want your rescuer to have climbed Mount Everest before, to have experienced what it's like. But you wouldn't just want them to sit down next to you and say, man, I know what this is like. It sucks. You would want them to pick you up and say, come with me. I know the way. And this brings us to our second and final point, which is Jesus is able to help us, firstly, because he is like us. He's a sympathetic friend. But secondly, because he is not like us. You know, there's this really important phrase at the end of verse 15. The writer says, Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are. He's experienced what we've, ex we've experienced. He's walked through what we've walked through. And yet the author adds there at the end of verse 15, yet he did not sin. Jesus never tripped up. He never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. Now, I can hear what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, okay, yeah, Jesus never sinned, but surely it was different for Jesus, the Son of God. Surely it was easier for Jesus. Surely he had some kind of secret superpowers that made him impervious to the full weight of temptation. Well, to quote C.S. Lewis again, he actually says it's the opposite. L listen very carefully to what C.S. Lewis says. It says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full 
what temptation means. Jesus knows the strength and the weight of temptation better than any of us. He's faced what we face. He's tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. Now, why does this matter? What's the big deal about Jesus' sinlessness? Well, it means that Jesus is not trapped in the hole of sin with us. It means that he's the only one that is able to pull us out. Think about the Mount Everest example again. I I heard a pastor named Reuben Capel give this illustration. I mean, imagine you're, you're climbing Mount Everest, but you fall into a deep crevasse, a deep hole. And when you hit the bottom, your legs shatter and you are stuck with no way out. Who do you want to rescue you? Well, you want your rescuer, your rescuer to be a mountain climber. You want someone that understands mountains and ropes and pulleys and crevasses. You want someone that understands your situation. But you also want someone that is not at the bottom of the crevasse with you. They're not going to be much help to you. You want someone that is outside your situation. And this is why Jesus is the Savior that we need. Because he understands our situation. He empathizes with us, but he's also outside our situation. He's not trapped by it, and he's able to do something about it. And this is precisely what Jesus does. He does something about our situation. This is what the end of his life is all about. The cross and the resurrection. You see, this is what makes the cross so amazing. Jesus, the sinless one, he dies in the place of sinners, you and I so that we might receive his sinless record. You see, on the cross, Jesus not only does something for us, he not only dies in our place, he not only pays our penalty, he not only takes our judgment, he also gives something to us. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his sinlessness. He gives us the gift of restored relationship with God. And this is why Christmas is such good news. This is why the angels sing glory to God. This is why we sing, oh, holy night. Because the one who is born in the manger, the one who deserves to live, he dies so that you and I who deserve to die might live. To put it another way, Jesus allows himself to be thrown right to the bottom of the crevasse to taste death and judgment on our behalf, not just to sympathize with us, but to take us into his arms, to to pull us out of our deep, dark hole and to bring us into the light of God's presence forever. And and this is what verse 16 goes on to say. It says, because Jesus drew near to us, because Jesus died for us, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, what comes to mind when you think about approaching God? Confidence or cringing? Grace and help or anger and disappointment? This verse is saying that because of what Jesus has done for us, when we come to God with the empty hands of faith, We do not receive what we deserve, judgment. We actually are given what we do not deserve, grace and mercy and help. So my friends, whatever your Christmas looks like this year, whether it's great and wonderful, 
whether it's crazy and busy, whether it's hard and difficult, here is what is true for you and true for me. Jesus is able to help us because he's like us. He understands what it's like to be us. He sympathizes with us. But Jesus is also able to help us because he is not like us. He is not at the bottom of the crevasse. He is the only one that is able to pull us out. And this is why he was born. This is why he came. This is what he did on the cross and through his resurrection. And the invite is on the table to you. Everyone is invited and no one is excluded. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you've walked in here today. The question is, will you come? Will you draw near? Because there is grace for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible gift of your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is our sympathetic friend. He understands. He knows. And he's also our powerful and able saviour. He alone can pull us out of the darkness of our sin, pull us out of the darkness of death and give us the gift of life. Father, we don't need to bring our record to you. We don't need to bring our good deeds. We simply come with the empty hands of faith and we allow you to fill them with everything we could ever hope, dream, or imagine. And so, Lord, would, would this Christmas be the Christmas that changes everything for some of us? Would some of us receive the good news that leads to great joy for all the people? The coming of our friend and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in His name. Amen.